In our small groups, many of us have been confronting the hard-hitting prophecies of Amos, which make for uncomfortable reading. And I'm afraid that the passage today is equally hard-hitting. This is not a nice Mothering Sunday sermon. If you're hoping for something soft and fluffy, you'd better zone out now and contemplate the daffodils. Helen explained last week that the aim of John's gospel is to clearly demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And John structures the narrative around various images and signs that show that Jesus is truly the Messiah. To help his readers and listeners come to their own life-giving faith in Christ. In chapter 4, last week, we looked at Jesus as the life-giving water. In chapter 8, Jesus claims that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this claim is repeated in verse 5 of our reading from chapter 9. I am the light of the world. Christ has come to bring God's light to the chaos and darkness of a fallen world, echoing God's work at creation. But now Jesus is in the process of recreating the world and its inhabitants, of initiating a process which will ultimately head to a new heaven and a new earth, which has no need of the sun for the, or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. That's from Revelation 21. So this is where it starts. And Christ's astounding claim is backed up by a dramatic action. The only instance in the entire Bible where someone who had been blind since birth was given sight. Someone for whom life had always been dark, suddenly receiving light. And by telling us this, John is also demonstrating that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. There are prophecies in the Old Testament like this from Isaiah 35. Your God will come to save you, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. In the Gospels, Making blind people see is Christ's most frequent type of miracle as he drives home the reality that God has indeed come to live amongst his people. The physical restoration of physical sight is a sign of how Jesus enables the spiritual renewal of God's people, opening their understanding to the spiritual reality that the light of God is now with them. The waiting is over. Jesus has an agenda which is laid out in the first few verses of this chapter. In his short earthly ministry, he wants to display the works of God in the lives of God's children. Verse 3. He wants to work with us in achieving God's purposes. Verse 4. He wants to shine the life-giving light of God into and through his people out to the world. And like a caring shepherd, he is out looking for us. Verse 35, noticing us. 
verse 1. He actively wants to go and find and rescue people from darkness. So, why should there be a problem? It's all good, isn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want what Christ has got to offer? But as John warned us at the start of his gospel, the light of the world came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Both chapters 8 and 9 are full of people's resistance to Jesus' message. It's easy to read these accounts and think that it's about them, the Pharisees, the uncomprehending first century Jews, the unlettered peasants. When I was a little girl, I used to think that if I'd been around in Jesus' day, I'd have been his friend. I would have understood him. I wouldn't have run away. But with greater experience of life, I cannot be so sure. Because you see, the blind resistance that Jesus encounters here isn't about them. It describes us. Here we are, 2017, with both testaments freely available, the education to read them, benefiting from regular church teaching and a world of knowledge at the tap of a screen. We even know how the story's going to end, yet still we can be blind. And this passage illustrates how. First, there's the issue of simple bewilderment. In verse 2, Jesus' disciples wonder whether the man's congenital blindness is due to either his own or his parents' sin. Because this was what the Pharisees taught. A harsh indictment that suffering was the well-deserved punishment for wrongdoing. Even today, some religions teach that the past or something done in a previous life is the cause of current disability or low status. In verse 3, Jesus absolutely refutes this. Our fallen world is not like some slot machine where putting in good deeds always results in good results, where all wrongdoing actually damages the perpetrator. As we all know, Kindness can be rejected. Cheats often get away with it. So there's not a law that says wrongdoing equals suffering. But we do also have to recognize that we can become blind to the consequences of our behavior. The frequently speeding driver, and I know I am one of them, get so fixated on getting to their destination on time that they stop being aware of the domestic realities of pedestrians, zebra crossings, and less confident drivers. The obese person stops seeing how huge their portions really are. The viewer of online porn stops realizing that they are gazing 
at younger and younger bodies. We all start to justify our wrong behavior, oblivious to its evils. And in this way, sin can make us blind. And we can be blinkered by the way we've brought, been brought up. Christianity does not teach that children are punished for the sin of their parents, the result of some vindictive scheme of retribution. But on this Mothering Sunday, we have to acknowledge that how we've been parented shapes us. My mum and dad were loving and stable. But in becoming a Christian, I've had to step away from my mum's social anxiety about being common. My dad's casual racism an underlying suspicion of Jews. I need Christ to keep challenging me about my inbuilt assumptions. And yes, it's invariably painful when he does. Sometimes it's easier to stay blinkered. Often we simply can't compute that things can be different how they are. For a lot of us, our foundations are grounded on the tangible, the, the normal. When I used to gaze out of the old rectory windows at the beautiful cherry tree and the weeping willow, if you remember them, I couldn't imagine how three houses could possibly be built there. But here they are. Verses 8 to 9 tell us that some of the neighbours couldn't believe that it really was the sightless beggar that they'd so often passed. When we lived in Nottingham, a very rotund student called Mike sometimes babysat our boys. A couple of years later, he rang the doorbell on a flying visit and our younger son came running to me and said, Mum, there's someone at the door who looks a bit like Mike, but it can't be him because he's not fat. He was bewildered that it was indeed his old babysitter who had fasted to half his weight. Rather like our son, the neighbours were blinded by the usual to the transformation that Jesus was bringing about. We can also be blinded by the rules or the orcs that we have been taught. In verses 14 to 16, the Pharisees couldn't get past the fact that Jesus had healed the beggar on a Sabbath. It couldn't have been a work of God because it didn't fit their rules. It simply wasn't right. Worshippers at APC come from all sorts of religious backgrounds. Habitual Anglicans may feel that it's not a proper service if we don't have the confession and a hymn. Many from a free church background struggle to see how God can really speak through a predetermined liturgy. Some desiring spiritual renewal feel it can't possibly be released without lots of singing. 
all our underlying rules about how God is allowed to work. How blind we are. What the Pharisees were really saying was that they didn't want God to operate outside of the way that they liked things to be done. Their own control of worship was more important than responding to God's initiatives. So in verse 18, they would rather believe that the man had never really been blind than entertain the fact that Jesus had given him sight. When our cherished views are threatened, we'll believe anything to avoid the terrifying consequences of change. The thing is, the Pharisees were blinded by fear. They were well used to dealing with the pagan Roman world and condemning it from the security of the Old Testament. But here was a new reading of their scriptures by a fellow Jew, one who claimed divine authority. He was suggesting that they had got it wrong. And worse still, people were flocking to his cause. Their security was at risk. They couldn't afford to recognize that Jesus' claims might be true. It was also fear which blinded the beggar's parents. Although they knew that their son had indeed been healed, they distanced themselves from its cause. Verse 22 tells us that his parents were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, in first century Palestine, the synagogue was not only the centre of village worship, but of all things social. Being excommunicated was like being sent to Coventry. No one would dare to associate with them. Fear of being lonely, fear of being an outsider, FOMO, fear of missing out. How often does that mean that we shut our eyes to what's right so as to keep in with our boss, our friends and our work colleagues? If we open our eyes to the truth, we, well, we might have to take a stand. It's so much safer to stay under the radar to be like the monkey who refuses to recognize evil. Verse 22 gives us another reason why the Pharisees refused to respond to what Jesus was doing. They had already made their minds up. Every year, we are thrilled by the numbers who come through our Alpha courses and make a commitment to Christ. An alpha works because it embraces those with questions. But an awful lot of folk have already decided. There's a creator God? Rubbish. We have a spiritual identity. Oh, what drivel. There's life beyond the grave? Nah, this is it. It's not just those outside these walls. How many of us at APC have already decided prayer ministry, not for us. 
physical healing by the Holy Spirit, unlikely to take place. Far more rational rational to be sceptical about the Bible than to believe that God speaks through it. Have we become like the Pharisees, no longer open to having our minds changed? As we move on to verse 24, we can also see that the Jews were blinded by their judgmentalism. When they couldn't discredit the reality of the blind man's healing, they resorted to discrediting the person who did it. We know Jesus is a sinner, they said. In chapter 7, they'd said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? The son of God couldn't possibly be a northern peasant. In chapter 8, they claimed that Jesus was a Samaritan and and demon-possessed. His evident power must be suspect. And in chapter 9, they pass judgment on Jesus' credentials. Oh, as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The implication is that the Lord is a charlatan. When we become uncomfortable hearing a message, it's easy to focus on criticizing the messenger. His or her faults become the excuse to stop listening. I don't care what they say. If it's them saying it, I won't take it on board. I'm afraid to say that I already have that attitude regarding Donald Trump. Why would I listen to his talk of saving the U.S. economy when apparently he's already spent over $10 million on personal expenses since taking office? But what if God might use him in a way that I can't yet understand? What if my judgment is faulty? Some here today will have felt let down when those appointed to minister to us failed to respond in the way that we needed. And that will have happened because John and Chris are imperfect human beings. But they are also humble, prayerful men who are trying to pass on what they feel God has laid on their hearts. Will judgmentalism be the excuse that blinds us to what God is saying through them, as it did for the Jews in our reading. Lastly, we encounter in this narrative what can only be called blinding pride. In verses 28 to 9, the Pharisees assert their sense of superiority and secure status. We're disciples of Moses, We know that God spoke to Moses. Basically, they are saying, we're sure of who we are, and we like who we are, and we think we've got it right already. We are powerful. We are successful. Others, poor unfortunates who don't worship the way that we do, 
look up to us and envy what we've got. Heaven forfend that we should ever think like that. The irony is that Moses himself looked forward to the climax of God's story when his light for all nations would be revealed. The Pharisees' sense of superiority had blinded them to what Moses actually represented. The law was never God's final word. I like the fact that this chapter is full of ironic humor, not least when an illiterate beggar bests the religious experts. In verse 27, he replies to their endless questioning, I've told you already, were you not listening? And then in verse uh, 30, uh, 30, he's even being sarcastic. Oh, remarkable, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. The consequence, in verse 28, they hurled insults at him. And in verse 34 declared, you, you were steeped in birth. How dare you steeped in sin since birth? How dare you lecture us? An elevated sense of status has toppled over into blind arrogance. How dare a social outcast challenge the elite? The the Pharisees take offense, even as right now, some of us might be taking offense at the implications of this passage for us. The outworking of Jesus' agenda in the beggar has become an affront to the Jewish system. It can no longer be tolerated. The man, a shining example of Christ's new light, is expelled. As John summarizes in chapter 3, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. So as we read through this chapter, the message that comes out so powerfully is that we are all blind. And if we're tempted to think that we aren't, in the words of 1 John 1 1.8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Pharisees' refusal to confess their sins and acknowledge Jesus' authority as the Son of God meant that in verse 41, there was no one to take their guilt away. Because only Jesus can do that. And at the end of the verdict... At the end of the narrative, Jesus gives his verdict. The Jews, who were so sure of their clear-sightedness that they resisted the Messiah's claims and actions, have proved themselves to be spiritually blind. Meanwhile, those who understand their own blindness are given sight. Because... This chapter helps us to see that there's another way to respond to Jesus. And it stems from acknowledging that we need his light. In contrast to the Pharisees' pride, the blind man is humble. He's prepared to undergo whatever it takes, 
Whereas, let's face it, a lot of us might not like our faces being rubbed with spit. Well, not after the age of five. He is obedient. Go and wash, says Jesus. So in verse 7, the man, blind, groping his way to probably somewhere he's not been before, goes. No thought about, oh, it's an effort. and Oh, it's, it's a bit exposing. When the miracle happened, the beggar didn't fudge the issue, but acknowledged to the excited questioners that it was the work of Jesus. And despite the pressure he was put under, the opportunities provided to appease those surrounding him, the man was courageous in defending the truth. I was blind, but now I see. It was Jesus. And in verse 17 and verse 27, he testifies to his own belief in Christ as a prophet and by implication that he's willing to be a disciple. Then, not content with what he knows so far, in verse 38, he seeks to know more. Who is the Son of Man? Tell me so that I may believe in him. His submission to the work of Jesus in his life means that not only does he receive physical sight, he also arrives at spiritual insight. In verse 38, we read that he worshipped Jesus a recognition that he was indeed God. Humility, obedience, courageous witness, and worship. We too can choose to respond like this. And if we do, we too can have our lives transformed, be rescued from our darkened understanding into the searching, life-giving light of Christ. But it may not be a comfortable process because we have to acknowledge our blindness first. Or we can stay comfortable, shield our eyes from the glare, Secure within what we already know, where we've already got to, the evidence of our church's success all around us. And contemplate the daffodils.